welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kate Colvin. Kate is a sport and performance psychology consultant with over a decade of industry experience. Kate has had the pleasure of working with high-performance tactical units from various nations and is currently working as the lead tactical performance psychologist for Exos on a tactical project in Europe. In addition to her work in the tactical field, Kate has worked with collegiate, professional and Olympic level athletes as well as Fortune 500 companies. Kate believes that if you want to get your grind right, first you must get your mind right. In this episode, Kate talks about her path to becoming a performance psychologist, the skills operators can utilize to develop enhanced mental performance, how she has incorporated yoga into the training of operators to help switch off and downregulate, the use of imagery within injury rehabilitation, her work as part of leaving the sideline, a non-profit organization that provides resources to active service members, veterans, and NFL alumni to increase suicide awareness and reduce the suicide rate. Good afternoon, Kate, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you very much for taking the time, and thank you very much, I've got to say, to Josh Fletcher, who we've had on the podcast and played a big part in helping get us up to sit down and chat to each other. Yeah, nice shout out to Josh. Thank you so much for connecting us. I'm really looking forward to this chat. Me too, me too. I know we've uh, chatted a little bit off air as well, uh, Kate, just about uh, the work you're doing, your background. Uh, For anyone who may not be familiar with you and some of the work you've done, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of where you started with your career and where you're currently at now? So my career really started, I believe, at the age of seven when I was adopted into a military family. My dad had served in the Navy prior and the majority of the rest of my family had served as well. So I grew up with a high level of respect for that. And then I was an athlete growing up, played every sport that was offered in my small town in Idaho, where I grew up. And then when I was going to college, I had actually considered uh, joining or going into the ROTC to set me up to be in the Army eventually. And I had someone very close to me tell me that they had always supported my decisions and told me that I could do whatever I put my mind to, but that I asked too many fucking questions to be in the military. So I said, roger that. And it was still always in the back of my mind. I, I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to give back in some sort of capacity. And so that that piece of me and that um, need and want to serve had never really disappeared. In college, I was a fitness instructor and um, graduated with a degree in psychology and physical and health education. And I didn't quite know what area or what um, direction I wanted to head after that. So I had done my prereqs for med school, but then I also had got exposed to psychology and intro to sports psychology class. And it really made me question what I thought I wanted to do. I grew up mm-hmm. thinking I was going to be a sport medicine doctor if I wasn't going to join the military. And so for me to really commit to a a lot of years of graduate school and a lot of money as well to go to graduate school. I wanted to make sure I was making the right choice. So I took two years off and I managed a gym in Seattle and I was working as the fitness director and then also um, as a personal trainer. 
And I just began to really see how much the mental component played a role in performance optimization and performance outcomes. So I worked with a lot of competitive triathletes um, and some other professional athletes while I was in Seattle. Um, and then in addition, I was competing in triathlons and I actually tore my meniscus. And it was the first time in my life that I couldn't move like I wanted to that I didn't have the freedom. And it really did um, take a toll on me. So that whole identity, I was an athlete. So what do you do now? And so I just really, really realized how much the mental game, if you will, plays a role in not just our like sport performance or goal attainment, but just mental health and well-being. And so I emailed the professor that taught the intro to sports psych class that they took in my undergrad. I asked him if he was accepting graduate students. That was in November. And then in January, I started my program with Dr. Damon Burton at the University of Idaho. Mm-hmm. And it was it was really great jumping board. I would have stayed with him um, throughout my doctorate, but he told me I couldn't have all my degrees from the U of I. So he, he kicked me out as a joke. Um, but while I was there, I was actually the only master student and the rest of the students were doctoral students. And so we were hosting the Northwest Sports Psychology Symposium. And just because they had such a heavy load with their dissertations and data collection, I offered to coordinate the symposium on behalf behalf of our program. And Damon Burton had actually connected me with a gentleman named Dr. John Hammermeister, who helped set up the program at West Point. with sports psychology, gosh, back in the early, early 2000s. And he said, hey, I know this guy. He was one of my students. We can get him for free as the keynote if you're interested. And then realizing what he had done and that just the word military really, my ears perked up. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that I knew that what exactly what I wanted to do in 2009. I would say, um, I, I just knew when John presented that program that that is what I was going to do with my career. Yeah, and yeah. then I did go um, and study. Um, so I went to do my doctoral studies at Texas Tech University in educational psychology and sport performance psychology, focusing on injury rehabilitation, just because that was so close to my heart and just had such a huge impact on, on who I was and is what motivated me to get into the field. And I was attending a conference in 2011 in Honolulu, Hawaii, the Applied Association for Sports Psychology Conference conference and the keynotes were actually these individuals had set up this program which at the time it was SEP and then it became CSF then CSF2 and the name has changed a million times I believe it's R2 now ready and resilient but it was it's basically the idea of you know sport performance psychologists working with the military and there was a woman a great friend of mine today and her name is Dr. Kareen Harada and she was on this panel of experts and I've always been told I'm quite ballsy and I, and I certainly wouldn't regret it because uh, it's helped me get where I am today. But I just walked up to her after um, and asked her if I could buy her a cup of coffee and learn more about the program. And so in 2011, that is exactly, I, I knew that's what I was going to do. I knew I was going to apply. And so immediately after I finished my coursework and my qualifying examinations, I applied. I believe it was in September. And by the end of October, I had moved to Fort Bragg, North Carolina from Texas Mm -hmm. and began working with the military there. 
And when, when you made that uh, initial move, you're saying there, Kate, um, was that just into conventional forces or was that within special forces at that stage at Fort Bragg? So I began with conventional forces okay. at Fort Bragg with 82nd Airborne Division. So okay, yeah. the center of the military universe, I'm sure you've heard of that. <laughs> and it was, it was a great place to start so much diversity. Um, but I think the best part about it was the group of individuals that I, I worked with. And it just, I learned so much from them. Yeah. And they're still incredibly close friends and colleagues to this day. Um, but there, and then I did get pulled into working with special operations a few years into my time at Fort Bragg. Okay, okay. And obviously going in there as a performance psychologist, you just talk to us a little bit about what your role actually entails as a performance psychologist working within these units. Yeah, that's a great question. And it was so interesting. Um, so now my role, I work at NATO Special Operations Headquarters. So I'm exposed to, we support 29 nations, soon to be 30. And it's very interesting because each nation calls us something different. So I think before I go into to what I do, I want to distinguish the difference that there are clinical psychologists that also work as sport and performance psychologists. However, primarily what our focus is, is the psychophysiology. So we'll have a more robust educational background in kinesiology, exercise physiology, how the brain and the body work in conjunction with one another. So I am not a licensed therapist. I am not a clinical psychologist. I don't do any of that. So what I really work on is the skill delivery on the front end. So it's a more proactive approach. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the majority of us are, are not psychologists. So I, I make a joke that you, I don't care what you call me as long as you call me. So some people call me a sports psych, a mental performance coach, a mental performance specialist. Uh, my title now is a tactical performance psychologist. Again, honestly, I don't care as long as you're utilizing and people understand the difference in the lanes and, and stay and operate within their own lane. But I think that my role really does involve a learning that's that's where you have to start is learning your population and learning their needs at this level especially within special operations the majority of them are already utilizing the skill sets maybe just not to the fullest extent or as robustly as they could or maybe they're not aware of it so taking time to to learn reflect to see what they're already doing right because they're doing so much more right than they are wrong and then really building relationships so that you can then deliver the skill sets. On the episode with Josh, he joked that, you know, minus one for this, minus two for that. Yeah. And I always joke that I have three strikes going in. I'm a female. I work in the field of psychology and I have no prior military experience. As mm -hmm. I heard him add more to the list, I was like, oh yeah, maybe I do have more than three strikes already. And so I think first and foremost, being able to support the unit or whoever you're with requires being able to build that relationship and, and to gain that trust. Cool. I mean, you were saying there about um, like a lot of these guys have already some of the mental skill sets that you want them to have working within special uh, operations or need to develop like just some like separate areas. Can you tell us just a little bit about um, like some of the skills operators can use to develop their mental performance so they're, you know, they're optimizing that side of things? Absolutely. So when we're looking at the skills, it really is unit specific. Yeah. So 
it's it's very interesting because for example the green berets in the united states there's five different units first third fifth um seventh and tenth special forces group and then also um some reserve national guard units as well and when we get together each one of us that was working with those units we were all doing something a little different and that doesn't mean that it's wrong yeah. So being able to really lean in and understand, you know, what is the unit demands, the team demands, squadron, uh, what is their mission, what is the training, what does their op tempo look like? So interventions can look different across the units, um, even within a unit, across individuals. It could look very different, mm -hmm. but there are some, some core skills that we do teach and look at. So I think uh, first and foremost, would be being able to, to manage your energy effectively. So we know that the, the physiological spikes in heart rate, um, heart rate variability, inefficiency, that can therefore affect cognitive functioning. So your ability to focus your attention, um, to problem solve, to gather information, decision-making, moral judgment and reasoning, fine motor skills. You know, a lot of these performance skills that are required for these individuals to function optimally do get impacted if they can't effectively manage their physiology. And so I believe that's one that we, we all integrate across all units, different breathing mechanics, even just your thoughts. So yeah. uh, emotional and mental stressors, right, can, can cause our heart rate to spike as well. So being able to look at different thought patterns and whether they're effective or ineffective, I would definitely say that we don't use the terms um, positive or negative in this community. And there's a reason for that. So some people need to talk a little shit to themselves yeah. to motivate themselves to do the right thing. So as practitioners, I'm not going to tell you like, oh, that, that's, that's wrong. You shouldn't be saying that. Like, does it prime the emotion or the, the physiological activation that you need for that task mm -hmm. at hand? So some units, uh, depending on funding and, and different nations, will use biofeedback and we can use other various mechanisms to gather that quantitative data of what's going on. But sometimes just having a conversation is enough with that individual. Attention is huge. So your ability to focus, so sustained attention on one target, situational awareness, being able to recognize and interpret various stimuli, threats in your environment or non-threats, uh, facial recognition, mm -hmm is also another one that gets um, involved with attention. So there are various attentional styles and uh, we do use Nidifer's work a lot in regards to identifying attentional styles and what that might prime somebody to do, particularly under stress. And what we want to do as well is educate them on their ability to shift their attention. So for example, if an operator is going in to clear a house, they need to have broad situational awareness to scan their sector. They need to analyze, is this target a threat or a non-threat? And then if it is a threat, they shift to narrow external to engage their target, but then they have to just as quickly bring their situational awareness back out to scan for secondary threats within the environment. And so their ability to shift very quickly between these attentional domains or demands, if you will, is absolutely critical. And really their ability to manage their energy and manage their attention effectively work in conjunction with one another. Um, sleep, 
is huge. <laughs> so that is something that we're constantly, constantly educating on. Um, and people just don't get it. They think, you know, I'll sleep when I die. And so educating on what happens in various stages of sleep with growth hormone during the REM sleep cycle, um, and just explaining how sleep can optimize performance both physically and cognitively as well. Um, memory and ability to learn effectively. So a lot of these guys and gals are going to schools or they're training up for various missions and learning new skill sets. And so their ability to be able to focus their attention to, to learn effectively different review strategies to enhance memory is pretty critical as well. Um, even just working memory, if they're on target, being able to recall where they may have collected sensitive items from for that post-mission debrief. And then imagery is also another one that I that I like to work in. And, mm -hmm. and that's a big skill that we hear across various um, various lanes, if you will, or domains, whether it be sport or business or the military population. But for me, I, I really like to use imagery in the context performance-wise of always ending on a good note. So let's say that a cell, um, which consists of, of four individuals that are going and clearing a house or a specific portion of a house, let's say that they don't do it as effectively as the instructors or the cell leader or um, the, you know, the team sergeant would like them to, mm -hmm. but they might not have an opportunity to go back in the house to run through that same setup, or they might not just have an opportunity all due to ammo or um, time, range time availability. So our brains don't know the difference between highly vivid images and the real thing. So we can practice visualization to almost overwrite that error, if you will, so that they always end on a good note and have that effective rep to establish that, um, that effective mental baseline, if you will, performance baseline. Thanks for that, Kate. Like really interesting to hear about all the different skill sets operators can use to develop that mental performance. It's interesting to say there around about sleep. Obviously, it's become like the the, the heroic badge of honor of, you know, operating on minimal sleep. And yes. Like, oh, yeah, I don't need sleep. I'll sleep when I'm dead. But obviously, these operators, just to the high uh, op tempo these guys can have to experience and like just their, their shift in their nocturnal patterns. It's interesting, like just the, the negative effect that can have on their subsequent performance. Uh, one of the things you mentioned there I really want to dive into a little bit was you mentioned quickly attentional styles. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about that a little bit more? Like what are the different attentional styles and how does each one impact like, you know, how you go into say that room clearing uh, situation you talked about? Absolutely. Yeah. And then just a, just a, um, disclaimer, if you will. So there are so many more skills as well that can be integrated in. Mm -hmm. These are just a few that I have tend mm -hmm. to integrate more often with the individuals that I work with. Not to say that there are, aren't other skills that are also uh, beneficial and worthwhile to train as well. So it's really up to the practitioner to know what their, their customer needs. It's not about us. It's about the end user. And so being able to, to assess that and get after it. So to answer your question with the attentional style, style so Robert Nidefer published the uh, TASE, I believe in 1978, if my memory serves me correctly. And what it looks at is what is your default attentional style for your brain? So I like to call it your brain's greatest strength. But what we do know from research is that there's a high correlation with attentional errors that are associated with your dominant style when under high levels of physiological stress as well. 
So the taste you can you can look at online. Uh, I believe it's Winning Minds is the company. If you wanted to go take the taste um, yourself, you can you can go, and it's going to give you feedback on what your attentional style is, and then also perhaps um, interpersonal characteristics that can be huge in regards to team dynamics, which is a whole nother area uh, that can be touched on as well with individuals. So. There's, uh, well, we're looking at our attention. So we have external and then internal and broad and then narrow as well. So I'll just kind of explain it the way that is the easiest, if you will. Yeah. So broad external is going to be that situational awareness. So outside of myself, I'm gathering information um, from my environment. So these are going to be the individuals that, let's say you're at your desk and you maybe have a shared office with individuals and this is, you, you're constantly aware of who's talking what's going on you might be predisposed to have that attentional style if mm -hmm. you just like to gather that information in your environment which is also very critical obviously for operators to have as well and so that would be I'm entering a room and I have my sector and I'm scanning my sector so broad stimuli outside of me and I'm taking in and gathering what I have in my sector. And then when we shift to broad internal, so I'm taking that information that I've gathered, and now I'm analyzing that information. So that would be that attentional style, is just being analytical. So is this a threat? Is this not a threat? Do I engage? Do I not engage? Mm -hmm. Then we have mental rehearsal. So this is imagery. This is visualization. So maybe very quickly, some people might skip this step. They might not even realize they're doing this, but that's that quick wrap up. Okay, so this is a target I need to engage, and these are the kill zones, if you will, and this is how I'm going to engage, and then how I am going to move myself to uh, the area that I need to be in that specific room based on the layout of the room. And then finally, external narrow is that action. So this would be that individual has gathered that snapshot, broad, external. They've processed, this is a threat. Perhaps they've seen how they might engage or that. It could be the entire portion of it, just a piece of it, and now they're going to engage. And the way I explained it sounds nice and smooth and like it flows well, but that's not how our brains work. Not at all, right? Yeah. So one thing that is really, really interesting is that I do see that there's a high correlation, just from my experience, this is anecdotal. I think this would be an incredible research study to look at. But so in the, um, for example, Green Berets, SF for the US, we call them um, MOSs. So military occupation specialty, and there are alphas, which are officers. Bravos are the shooters, so they're going to be weapon specialists. Um, Charlies are engineers. Deltas are going to be your medics, and then your echoes are going to be your communication sergeants. And so what I've seen is there's a high correlation with their attentional style, what, what happens to be their dominant, as well as their MOS. So it's really interesting to see that play out yeah. as they're, for example, going through a shoot house doing CQB. Um, and so with the errors, so again, when our heart rates get elevated to a certain level, and it's going to depend on the physical fitness and just what's going on with that individual, so a, a attentional error with situational awareness might, might be sensory overload. Okay. So we heard a lot of uh, fight or flight mechanisms, but we don't really talk much about the freeze component, but this is where it might come into play. And when I see freeze, I don't mean 
you just completely shut the bed and stop moving. It could be for a tenth of a second. It could be for five seconds. But what we know in this field is that every second matters. Every tenth of a second matters. And so with that situational awareness, they might experience sensory overload. So maybe there's multiple targets and they take a little bit extra time to gather that information in their environment, or they might want to seek out that information. So there was one operator I worked with that that was his dominant style and he loved to know what was going on when he was supposed to be pulling security down the hallway that hadn't been cleared. He spent more time looking over his shoulder to see what was going on behind him. And that's just how his, his brain works. He wanted to gather that information with the analytical folks. These are the ones that are going to experience paralysis by analysis. So that is basically just overthinking. So a really good way to identify if this is your style is when your head hits the pillow, is that when your thoughts start to spin? Okay. So that would be a high correlation. And so with the analytical, um, what I do see is there is a higher, um, a high, Basically, they're going to be more prone to experiencing paralysis by analysis if it's a novel task, a newly learned task, because they're yeah. just going to maybe think a little bit too much. And so this would be, is that a threat? Is this not a threat? You know, is that the target that, you know, the face that Kate showed me to engage before we went in the house or, or whatever that might look like? Um, rumination would be just for that mental rehearsal, constantly going over in your mind's eye rather than executing. And then perhaps the most heard of or resonating one would be the idea of tunnel vision which mm -hmm. correlates with action so that's us getting locked in and fixated and not being able to bring our attention back out to that that broad situational awareness so perhaps they engage their target and then rather than bringing back out to scan any additional threats they stay locked in and they miss that so an example of this uh, was we were doing some shoot house training that I was supporting and it was set up to where there was a divider in a room and the cell of four individuals split, two went on each side and there was an individual in a, a blower suit, so padded up and he was non-combative. But so both of these operators went to go and zip tie him. He was not fighting back, but they got so locked in on just zip tying him and making sure he was taken care of that they missed somebody that came out from behind them out of the closet with a pistol and they walked up and just said close kill. And mm -hmm. so they were so locked in that they didn't even see this six foot five man come out of a closet, which was in their peripheral vision line. And so that would be an example of experiencing tunnel vision. Does that answer your question about the attentional styles? That certainly does, Kate. Thank you very okay. much for providing that overview. That was great. I was just wondering if we could just to delve into uh, an area because obviously with this podcast, a lot of guys from the military, but also first responders will listen into this. Um, yeah. So say there's an organization out there, like let's take for instance, maybe the police or the fire service, like just mm -hmm. the tax a little bit, who don't have a Kate Colvin on staff to help them with some of this stuff. And they're like, right, okay, we really want to focus, well, we really want to work on our focus and our attentional control. But yeah. We don't know where to start, like what some of the drills could be we could get to work on that. Because I remember speaking to uh, Dan Cooper, and said like a lot of the stuff is guys just throw too much on too soon yeah so how could these guys go about you know like right okay i really want to do some work my focus and attention and control what could be like my baby steps into this and how could i build on that and that? i 
I love that you brought up doing too much too fast. Yeah. So that is probably the biggest error I see um, is that people just try to do too much and then they might get burnt out or they're like, this is too much work. Um, so one thing I would recommend is, so in, in regards to being able to shift your attention, but also being able just to sustain and focus your attention on the right target for the required period of time, mindfulness or meditation is honestly a skill that is incredibly powerful mm -hmm. because it actually does it does adapt our neuroplasticity and it helps establish maybe new or more effective neural pathways to be able to sustain our focus. So if someone wanted to integrate this and they don't have access to someone like me, um, apps like Headspace, Insight Timer is a really great one as well, um, Calm, any of those apps that have, you know, this, this guided meditation or mindfulness is where we begin. So the ones where, um, it's not guided can be difficult in the beginning for somebody to transition into if we're looking at baby steps. So in regards to being able to focus our attention, it's impossible to multitask unless they're very, very, very high practice and well-learned skills, right? Yeah. Um, but if I'm listening to your voice, John, it's going to be difficult for me to also pay attention to other external stimuli. So I would recommend the guided practices to start. And then as you build your practice, you can transition into unguided where you're focusing or managing your own attention. One thing I would say is that as you start to practice it, don't get pissed when you're unable to focus or sustain your attention. Mm -hmm. So a, the first course I took to get certified in mindfulness training, we were getting ready to do our, our longest practice, which was going to be unguided on our own. And he said, you know, when, when your attention starts to drift, because inevitably it will, he said, just thank yourself and bring your attention back. And in my mind, I'm like, why would I thank myself for not being able to focus? And then sure enough, I was practicing that night and my attention got pulled off onto like what I needed to do tomorrow or what I needed to make sure I had in my range kit as I went out um, the next morning. And I got mad. I was pissed that I couldn't focus my attention and I felt my heart rate spike. And then instantly I was like, oh, I get it. I get it now. The higher my heart rate is, the more difficult it's going to be to focus. And so what I would say is that when your brain does, again, get distracted, because inevitably it will, especially if you are someone who's easily distracted, that's going to occur um, quite often in the beginning. But this is a skill that we can train just like any kind of physical fitness. Rather than getting upset, acknowledge that that's just your brain's ability to shift fast from one target to another. And when we're talking about first responders, any kind of medics, um, you know, police force or military, you all are trained to respond and react to stimuli. So different sounds, there are going to be, you know, different things that are going to trigger your attention to come off quote unquote target, but that's fine. Just simply bring it back. And being focused or sustaining attention doesn't mean that you never shift. It just means that if you do, you're able to effectively bring your, your focus back on target quickly so you don't miss any relevant information in your environment. But again, mindfulness will help establish that neuroplasticity to be able to enhance your attentional focus. Interesting. That is really interesting. Okay, and thank you very much for that. I'm sure the guys listening will find that very insightful. You talked a little bit about obviously meditation mindfulness to help with uh, focus and attentional control, but I know 
I mean, you've been chatting off air as well a little bit about yoga and your use of yoga practice with regards to the guys you're working with. Yeah. Um, could you just talk a little bit about how that's come about, like how you've implemented that and how that's improved operator performance? Yeah, I would love to. So I, as I mentioned, um, was a fitness instructor in college and one of the certifications that I got very early on, it's been 17 years now, um, was my 200 hour level yoga certification. And so I've always been I've always been a practitioner myself of it, and I do call myself a yogi, and I just saw a really great opportunity to be able to integrate yoga in, but there are two of my colleagues, um, Christine Sanchez and Tracy Heller, shout out ladies, that are also trained in yoga, and Mm -hmm. they work with a special operations population that was very, very receptive to integrating yoga, and so I said, hey, this unit's doing it. Why are we not doing it? And um, slowly but surely, I was having full classes of these guys. And it began with just an opportunity to practice uh, vinyasa or flow-style yoga to move their bodies. Um, And then, of course, I always work in my sports psych type of stuff and focus techniques and mindfulness. And it's just a really good opportunity to do what I call switching off. But then uh, recently, within the last few years, I did get my certification in yin yoga, as well as um, one called long, slow, deep, which targets connective tissues between muscles and then fascia throughout the body. And so we can actually work on the myofascial release. So injury prevention, injury rehabilitation is huge for this population as far as like retention and being able to stay um, and have a, have a, a long career that you don't you're not broken off at the end of it. Um, So I've shifted my focus more to that yin style practice. And what we'll do is we'll start with, you know, some flow just to get them moving. But then during these poses, you stay in them for an extended period of time, which is what looks different. So they're called archetypes instead of postures. Same, same. It's just, it's just a pose in yoga, but you're spending anywhere between three, five, maybe even a longer extended period of time in that posture to target the connective tissue and the myofascial release effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it differs. And then during that time, I use that as an opportunity to train the mental skills, to talk about what this looks like. But it honestly is it just a great opportunity to teach people what it feels like to switch off. And it's also a great opportunity to integrate breathing techniques. So being able to control our heart rate is, is directly influenced by our respiratory rate. And so there are I mean, every single practitioner I know teaches breathing. It's, it's one of the first things we teach and one of the fundamentals of it, but how to do it correctly. And so that's during the yoga classes is a great opportunity to teach correct breathing techniques and a variety of them. So whether it's alternate nostril breathing, um, diaphragmatic breathing, belly breathing, tactical breathing, whatever you want to call it, that's all the same thing, but also introducing techniques like progressive muscle relaxation. Mm-hmm. Um, which was initially introduced in a clinical setting, but we know that that can also help to engage the parasympathetic nervous system. So a lot of these individuals will take things that I I teach within the yoga practice itself and integrate in perhaps before bed to help them have more effective sleep, to fall asleep faster and to stay asleep. So that's been how how I've used yoga. But people really do look forward to having that hour two times a week to just switch off and to remove themselves from that environment. And then while this is not my my number one goal, obviously, with teaching yoga, 
when I switched to yin yoga, I had such great feedback because people were telling me, oh my gosh, for the first time in 15 years, I don't have back pain. And so for me, that was just a huge sustain. So one thing I would say as well, because a, a lot of the listeners probably practice yoga on their own, um, Hadasana is a really great online resource. Um, I have a lot of my certifications through them and they have online classes that are live or also recorded classes and they offer the yen style as well as the, the long, slow, deep. But if you're going to a, um, a, a yoga studio to actually practice in person, I would, I don't want to say I would discourage somebody from practicing a vinyasa or like the hot yoga, which everybody enjoys, but I would say that yoga isn't a workout, it's a work in. Mm -hmm. So I would say gear yourself more towards what's going to allow you to switch off because first responders, military personnel, you're constantly activated and switched on. And so while you may enjoy that, and if you enjoy it by all means, please work that into your practice, but maybe consider a little bit more of a chill style of yoga as well. And I think that um, you've experienced some great benefit with that. Nice. nice. And it's interesting to hear like uh, your take on it and from some other people I've chatted to as well, Kate, of just how they're starting to implement a bit more of that yoga practice into the work with either military or first responders. Because as you say, within this population group, they are physically and mentally, you know, at the limit a lot of the time. So it's just like, right, how do you switch that off? How do you help down regulate yeah. that? And yeah. I, I love that phrase of like, instead of working out, working in. I think I'll yeah. uh, use that going forward. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant uh, saying to have. So Please take it. Yeah, there's no, so yeah, take take anything if it helps. And I also, if I'm honest, they are, <laughs> when they're on their mat in my class, I have that opportunity for 60 minutes to also integrate perhaps, you know, these, these sport or performance psychological techniques that they would have never otherwise utilized before, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they would have never come. So um, there's just, I just think it's such a great opportunity for practitioners. I also did recently take a, a trauma-informed yoga class mm -hmm. and it was incredibly enlightening as far as just considerations that I, that I wouldn't have thought about before. So I'd also recommend that anybody who is working with these populations, uh, maybe look into to that training as well so or adding that to your repertoire. So, so what is that one specifically there, Kate, you mentioned? Is it, was it trauma-informed, you say? Yeah, a trauma-informed yoga um, certification. And I, I did that through um, a woman called Ellie Grace in the UK, actually. Brilliant, brilliant um, yoga practitioner. Uh, learned so much from her in this course. But something as little and maybe, you know, my fellow yoga instructors listening who have integrated it might be like, really, Kate, you didn't think about that? But something as simple as um, making sure that as you set up the room their backs aren't to the door okay, and yeah, yeah yeah and that was something so my current location that I'm at the way the room is set up is there's more space by the door so I could fit more mats there and so I could have more people come into the class the way I set that up and as soon as Ellie mentioned that I was like oh my gosh why didn't I think about that um, and then also various poses so um, happy baby for example um, is a pose uh, or like straddle pose anywhere that kind of the legs are open but I mean I don't want to lose sight of that there are um, you know sexual trauma victims in in our military or in in any kind of, you know, with the first responder or tactical populations. And so even the postures or poses that you select um, could 
or are very important as well. Or when you ask somebody, you know, encourage the entire class to close their eyes, rather than saying close your eyes, lower your gaze, or close your eyes if you're comfortable. So just little language that I picked up on um, was really, really helpful just to be, you know, a reminder and a good uh, reinforcement. And then also the idea of, of how we carry trauma in our body and what that might look like as well. And that's that's a real interesting concept you say there as well about uh, having the guys positioned in the class, you know, facing the door as opposed to the back of the door. So like, yeah, in a normal like uh, civilian uh, class, it's no big deal. But obviously, this group you're working with, that's a different deal entirely. So yeah, yeah which I considered if I'd ever been out to like a meal with them, I always sit with my back to the door because I know that they they want to see, they want to be situationally aware, right? But as I said at my yoga room, all I was worried about was how to get more people in the door rather than am I best supporting and setting up an environment that's conducive to those coming in through the door. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just really good considerations. And I'm a big proponent of always learning as well. Um, that I think that's a big mistake that the uh, newer people might make coming in. I, I certainly did. And Josh even admitted this, you know, we think that we know it all. Um, but you, you don't realize how much you don't know until you, you start learning more information. Um, so Dunning-Kruger syndrome does rear its ugly head a lot of the times. And so being able to expose yourself to um, different people that might have a different perspective or a different angle, I think is just so critical. And there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score that talks yeah. a lot about, yeah, trauma and how we store it in our body. And, and so that was actually the book that um, was used as the foundation for that course that I took. So if you can't take a trauma-informed class, get that book. I, I, it's just incredible information. That's really interesting. Um, I just want to take it back for a second there, Kate. Um, earlier on, you were mentioning about during your, I think it was your collegiate days, you, got, you picked up an injury and stopped mm -hmm. you performing and within your sport. Uh, so during the recovery process, you talked a little bit about the, the role of imagery and how you use that within your rehabilitation. And I know me and you have chatted about how you've used it with some of the, the guys you've been working with currently. So can you just talk a little bit about like the role of injury within um, injury rehab and just like how you've implemented this in with the guys you're working with? Yeah. So um since it was so personal for me, obviously I had a, a invested interest in it. Uh, but then also I, you know, injuries are a very common occurrence, unfortunately, in this population. So whether they like it or not, uh, whether it's from jumping or, you know, carrying a heavy load for an extended period of time, um, I mean, IED, any kind of kinetic combat, um, we see injuries a lot. It's, it's a very high uh, rate you know, in this population and in any tactical environment, whether that's first responders or the military. Um, and so I had the pleasure of being able to present uh, what we call the Enhanced Operative Recovery Program at TSAC in probably the, the Tactical Strength and Conditioning Conference. I think it was 2015 or 2016. And it was myself and our tactical dietitian. And what we basically wanted to introduce was, hey, there are more ways that we can encourage um, an effective rehabilitation from injury or from surgery than just physical therapy alone. And it really did target the idea of the holistic approach to optimizing performance or rehabilitation. So she talked a lot about, uh, you know, what to eat for bone, bone repair or tendon repair, wh what it may be. 
And then for me, um, I, we did, I did talk a lot about obviously imagery, which you and I chatted about on the phone, um, sleep, and then just effective energy management as well. And then I, I do want to speak to one part where I see that the military in particular defies all, all research. But with imagery, I mentioned earlier that our brain doesn't recognize the difference between highly vivid images and the real thing. Mm -hmm. So the more that we can make that image robust with, you know, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we feel tactically, as well as what we feel emotionally, we fire neurons, which is going to trigger that response. And so while we may not physically be able to execute it, we're still heart, we're still basically firing those pathways. And so I, I like to use imagery twofold. So there are some studies that have been put out regarding imagery interventions prior to surgery. And so obviously this is, if you have the luxury of knowing that you're going in for a surgery, which I don't know if luxury is the right word to use, but you know you're going in and you have prep time. And yeah. so what I was able to do at my last unit was I got with the surgeons themselves as well as our physical therapists. And if someone wasn't squeamish, which this population usually isn't, we um, basically developed what was a imagery script or recording of the pre-op during operation and post-op experience. And so for, we began the intervention. We tried to do it about two weeks before minimum. And so every night before bed, they would listen to either myself, the physical therapist, perhaps it was their own voice or the doc if they had time, explaining what they're going to experience. And there is research that shows that we can ingrain those pathways so that there are less neurons that fire in regards in relation to a trauma or pain response during the surgery itself. And then obviously the less of those fire, the less energy we're wasting that we can use for healing after. And then in addition, if you think about it, if you know what to expect, you're going to go in with less anxiety. You're going to go in, you know, with that sympathetic nervous system, not as highly activated. And People in this environment love them some control. If you don't, then you're probably in the wrong field. And so being able to anticipate and expect and know every step of what's going to happen to you can just really be empowering, which helps increase um, their self-efficacy and even just like the belief and the trust in, in their staff. So use imagery on the front end and then on the back end, um, use it in regards to, I like to say in three different areas. So A, if it is something that you can't do, like a movement you can't do, we can still fire those pathways with that robust visualization. Um, after or when you're getting into rehabilitation, let's say that it's the first time that you're executing a squat after you just had ACL reconstruction. So being able to visualize with deliberate imagery, so in real time, the the engagement of that movement to help warm up those pathways, if you will. So your body is going to respond. And again, there's, there's, this is evidence-based that with less, less of a trauma response to that, um, anything that you're going to have anxiety around. Um, I did bring up the ACL and squats because that's where I typically see the highest level of anxiety. They don't want to put weight on their back and they're really nervous. Um, and ACL reconstruction obviously is a very, very, um, serious surgery, right? Yeah. With, a, with a long healing time. And these guys don't want to be out longer than they need to. Um, and then also anything that causes pain, being able to see that in your mind's eye before can help reduce the pain response as you execute it. So that is a, how I would integrate imagery or how I have and I've had experience with that in regards specifically to injury rehabilitation. 
but also another, I don't know if this would be uh, imagery as much as expectation management, but the tactical population defies all research in regards okay. to what we know from injury. So um, with the lead athletes, which I've had the pleasure of working with professional and Olympic level, we typically see that these individuals have a fear of re-injury. And that's what most of the research will, will indicate and tell you is that somebody that has an injury is going to have a fear of re-injury and perhaps not get after it as quickly or as efficiently as they should because of that fear. Well, it's the exact opposite with the tactical population. Like we can't hold these guys and gals down. Like they want to get back like the day after. And so one way that I've also been able to, to use imagery in it, in a way, if you will, is for the expectation management. Mm -hmm. So this is your healing timeline. This is where you should be at this point and this point to really help tamper um, basically what, what they expect. So a lot of these guys where, you know, ACL reconstruction takes a or repair and healing takes a long time, right? Yeah. These guys think that they're going to be squatting in two weeks. Um, and then if we, we talk about that identity theory, for me getting injured just as an athlete, that really shook me to my core because I had identified myself as an athlete. Imagine if you're an operator, that is you live, you breathe, that is everything. It affects your family life. And that's all, you know, they're an operator. And so what happens when they're not able to even go and clear the, the, the house, you know, with their team, or mm -hmm. they're not able to be in the gym in the morning working out and there's that camaraderie as well. And so um, I've also worked in with injury rehabilitation, the, the concept of self-efficacy theory as well. So making sure that they feel autonomous, they feel competent, so they know what they need to do and they're in control of the rehabilitation. And that expectation management can really help. But then also the, the sense of relatedness. So how can you still be a part of your team? And so maybe it is, hey, I'm going to do my physical therapy with you guys while you're trained to still be involved. or um, just however you can be involved. A lot of the times they just go home and they're on their own. And then that sense of disconnectedness can really be harmful for their mental health and well-being, which then we know has a great impact on their, their injury rehabilitation as well. Nice. Nice. Uh, like you say, I can only imagine the, uh, the effect it has on someone's identity there. Like I was the same as you, Kate. Like when I got injured, I was just like, well, you know, I'm going to be an athlete here. I'm going to be a strength coach as well. And I can't do any of this sort of stuff. So for those guys, that must be like a really, really challenging thing. But like you say there as well, just putting those uh, almost checks and balances in, like, you know, we expect you to be about here at this time frame, but mm -hmm. based on this, and like you say with the ACL stuff, I've had athletes before who are like, oh, well, you know, I should be back in um, nine months competing. It's like, no, you'll be back once you can do this, this, and this. So yep. don't think about the time span, okay? So it's yes. just one way to manage that. So that's really interesting. Really, really interesting. You said about then, Sorry, you can Kate. have those conversations, but you have to keep them accountable too. Yes. And so that's why, yeah. So making sure that they're out there and everybody's tracking what they should be doing and, um, and just kind of having those regular check, check-ins, I think is really helpful of, you know, like where are you at? How are you feeling? Um, mentally, physically, and then just making sure they're not pushing too hard, too fast. Um, because again, they, uh, that re-injury is just going to put them out for a longer period of time. You, you mentioned there about uh, with some of your past stuff as well, Kate, of having worked in pro sport. And I know that one of the great things about uh, the SF community is, you know, they reach out to a lot of different individuals um, to pick their brains and like really learn from different organizations. And I know 
leadership exchange or a knowledge exchange with the, the Seahawks you guys had? Yeah. Uh, you just talk yeah. to us a little bit about that. Like, how did that come about and what, what actually occurred during that exchange? Yeah. So um, I was connected through, um, he was he was the director of Exos, Angus McFord, um, has also been the president of ASP. And he connected me when I went to um, the last unit with Mike Gervais, who is the, the sports psych for the Seahawks. Uh, mm-hmm. Finding Mastery is a great podcast as well for anybody that's listening and is interested in sports psych. And so um, Angus basically just connected me with uh, Mike and then him and, and Pete Carroll, Coach Carroll, we were, had a conversation and they just asked me like, Hey Kate, and this was after the, the CX had won the Super Bowl. And they said, you know, I think that we need to humble ourselves a little bit. Some of these guys think that and this, uh, you, this is what was said to me, think that they're warriors and we just need to remind them that they're not. So could we send them down to you and you can expose them to warriors and we can do a little bit of a leadership exchange. And so it really was just this kind of like, hey, this would be fun. And then it turned into something um, so much more in the most incredible way possible. Um, so what we did was, and it was outside of season. So unfortunately, you know, Mike and the other coaches, uh, Coach Carroll, they couldn't be present because it was out of season. And so it was another way that they were able to come down to me. And so we had um, Doug Baldwin, Luke Wilson, Gary Gilliam. Uh, we just had some inc- Brock Coyle, some incredible people um, that came down. And it was all volunteer because it was outside of season. And it was, you know, whoever wanted to. And it, and it was, you know, some of the, the, the main leaders on the team that ended up being incredibly influential that season. And so the theme of that first leadership exchange was get comfortable being uncomfortable. And so what we did is uh, two of the special operations teams that I worked very closely with, I brought them in to help me with this exchange. And so I had allowed them to take the lead and to integrate and teach the skills because who's, who are these professional athletes going to want to listen to? Some chick or special operations you know, soldier, obviously the operator, right? Um, And so I just thought that they would lean in a lot more and then vice versa when I took um, my guys up to the Seahawks training facility the next day, the Seahawks were the ones that led that education in that day. So uh, the first part of the day, we took them and, and put them in the pool. So I had a dive team that I was working with and these guys did, you know, underwater swims. They they did drown proofing. They were exposed to what a combat diver would be exposed to. So took them. um, And so that was just a very interesting way to start the morning and to, to create a lot of trust with the individuals that were teaching them the skills, the the operators, um, but also just to get them, get them humble, get them grounded, get them exposed to something completely different. And then for the afternoon, we took them out to the shoot house mm-hmm. and they were able to do CQB with some rounds. And the reason we did that was there are very similar attentional processes for clearing a house as there are reading a field, right? So I'm scanning my sector, I'm reading the field, um, I'm analyzing who's open, I'm analyzing where the threat is, and then I'm executing the play or engaging the target. And so the idea was, if you are incredibly good at this, that should be able to transition nicely into the house. And so we also obviously worked on the, the working memory component of learning new skills and, and what that looked like. And so it was just a really great opportunity to allow these 
true, true leaders to share information with one another. Um, and it was just a really incredible thing to be a part of. And then the next day we brought a couple of the teams up to the Seahawks facility. Um, they learned plays, they, they learned how the Seahawks integrate the, the, the idea of sports psychology into what they do and and how they really live and embody that and then had a little scrimmage which was which was a lot of fun and then after that the relationship didn't end so the seahawks choose a team or excuse me not a team a unit military unit that they honor and up in washington state there are so many military units there's there's a lot there um, and so that next year they chose for special forces group as their unit to honor and so we had a um you know the salute to service game they were there we walked the flag out on the field um they were giving them tickets it was just this incredible incredible connection and it still hasn't ended um you know these guys are, are still incredibly close to with one another and and talk often and it just makes me so happy to hear because it really is you know the best of the best not in their field but in the world that are sharing ideas and best practices and maybe for players that haven't really bought into the idea of sports psychology they see these special operations soldiers doing it so if they think it's important maybe i should and then the same thing whereas you know these professional athletes you know believe that this is at the cornerstone doug baldwin says that that's the foundation to performance to being successful and to be you know to being an NFL player and Luke Luke Wilson as well they both um, shared quotes with me and and told me that I could use that and it's 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 a foundation to everything so if you hear a professional athlete say it you're going to be like ah this chick on the range maybe I should lean in and listen to what she's saying Uh uh so it served it served a multitude of purposes but I think it was a success um not because of of the learning that was done but I think the relationships that were built that sounds awesome and you touched on there briefly kate about like one of the parallels of the the attentional skills like from the guys from yeah. scanning the like in the kill house versus the guys on the field who are scanning the field or in their zone on the field whatever uh whatever parallels do you typically see between pro sports and special operations as well so at the end of the day the skills are the same skills right yeah. so you're just training for a different end state or i mean to be honest um the, the main difference, I would say, most of it's the same. You're just applying it maybe in a different context, similarly to, to strength and conditioning, right? Depending on your athlete, um, the event, the this, the that. But I think what differs is, is, the, is the consequences. It's not wins and losses. It's, it's life and death. And so I think that a lot of it is so similar. It's just a matter of knowing your population, knowing the language, knowing how the skill sets apply, right? Mm-hmm. How we use the skills, how we use imagery um, for, for football rather than, uh, you know, a, a shoot house. So it's all the same, same stuff, different outcomes. And I was going to say, Kate, like, it's, it's been really interesting hearing about um, like your career path from, you know, the, the initial interest as a young child, you know, within the military and then to where you're at currently now working as a performance psychologist. For anyone who was like, interested within the, the field of performance psychology, uh, psychology and was just listening and being like, right, I quite like to do what Kate's done, you know, what would be your, what would be your, um, your advice to them to go forward? You know, what would be the key steps they need to do for them? I love this question. And this was actually a question I've been asked a lot lately. And so I generated um, some conversation uh, through my social media, actually, and asked some other um, leaders in the field what, you know, what they would add as well. So first, most organizations will require a minimum of a master's degree 
in mm -hmm. uh, sport and performance psychology or related field. And again, I think that the first place to start if you are wanting to get into this is know the difference of between sports psychology and clinical psychology and the and the other lane. So know what you're getting into and know why that that lane of education is recommended or required. Then also most military organizations will require a minimum of five years experience, especially special operations. They want someone who's who's had that experience ideally with uh, military organizations or professional or Olympic level athletes, so high performers, um, collegiate as well. So be willing to to volunteer your time if need be to get that experience. So for example, I recently saw a posting come through um, through the, the ASP listserv, so the Applied Association for Sports Psychology, and it was an unpaid internship and for to be um, to volunteer at the NFL Combine. Do it. Go and spend your money, spend your time, buy a plane ticket, get there, um, and get as much experience as you possibly can. And so with that experience, ask questions, be mm -hmm. willing to learn. Um, I had, his name's, um, his name's Nate, and he is actually working with the military unit now, which I'm super stoked about. He's gonna be a great asset to that unit. And he was at one of the um, universities in Washington that I gave a keynote lecture on, and uh, he immediately contacted me and said, hey, can I come observe you? And he came out with me and met me at 4.30 in the morning so I could pick him up. We went on base and he observed me all day and asked all the right questions and just really was that quiet observer and absorbed everything. And it was just, for me, it was really comforting to know that there are people that want to make sure that they are the best person they can be for this population because our population sure shit deserves it. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of be willing to learn from your population so for anybody coming into a position and you get hired and this is <laughs> this is what i learned from my own mistake is don't think you're going to hit the ground running hit the ground learning so okay. i would say take a minimum of of two months to observe to learn to ask questions to um, get to know the people that you're working with so if it is a, a unit that has various courses ask if you can just observe the courses and learn what they're all about so if you try to go knocking on doors without knowing the population and what they do they're not going to open the doors for you so be willing to learn perhaps more from them than they ever learn from you and again, I mentioned before that this, this population, especially special operations, they're already doing so much more right than they are wrong. So you need to keep your head on a swivel and know what they're doing right. Um, and then how you can perhaps help them build that skill set up or um, just execute it more effectively. One thing that someone uh, mentioned I thought was really funny is be willing to move anywhere. So with the with the big army, especially in the United States, so that would be conventional forces, not special operations. There are some pretty shitty duty station, stations. Like there are some not fun places to be. Um, and I have had people turn down the opportunity to work at the military because it wasn't in, you know, an ideal location. Mm -hmm. And I would say, cool, those are the people that we don't want in this, in this field anyway. So uh, be willing to move wherever <laughs> it may require to get your, um, your foot in the door, I guess. Um, and again, not all places are super fun. Um, 
I would say with that, and this is my own personal feedback, is to be willing to hang. So there are some days that you have to go to work at 2 a.m. to support training or you're at work until 2 a.m. And so be willing to hang. Um, I have definitely given briefs um, and work with guys like we're all standing in a room that's covered in rat shit. You know, and it's just, you, you take advantage of the time you have and you don't complain. Um, never let them see you sweat and you shouldn't because um, they're sweating a hell of a lot more than you are. That's for damn sure. And then <laughs> my other uh, really good friend, Tracy, said, uh, bring your own snacks. <laughs> okay. Always bring your own snacks to training. So, um, and then I would add to that and say, bring snacks that they like too. So there was, <laughs> there was one um, train up where all the guys were really into dill pickle sunflower seeds. Okay. So I went to Costco and stocked up on them. And so when they ran out, I was like, oh, I have some guys. And so I lured them to me. And then I was able to chat a little bit more just by sharing some sunflower seeds. So <laughs> bring, bring snacks for you and for others. <laughs> nice, nice. I like that, okay. No, that's awesome, Kate. Thank you so much for giving like a really, really in-depth, uh, comprehensive um, overview of like your career path and stuff. And I really love that that saying of hit the ground learning. And I think yeah. that just really echoes what uh, Josh was saying as well about his time when he first got in onto base. Um, I think that's really handy because I think sometimes, and I know I've done it in the past in certain jobs, I've hit the ground running and not yep. taking the time to actually learn the environment properly. And it's cost me some relationships and stuff. So it, yeah. yeah. And it's not, it's, it's just cause you're excited sometimes and yeah. you might have the best intentions. I mean, that was, that was me. I had the best intentions. I wanted to give back to the population. I was so dang excited, but it prevented me from being able to really get to know my population. And when I slowed down, I mean, the military says slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Right. So yeah. we take that in as well. Um, and then one thing that really can help us tamper our own excitement is knowing like, what's your why? So we say that with our athletes. We say that, you know, with um, any of the operators we work with, why are you doing this? Why are you a combat diver? Why are you a, a special operations soldier? Why are you a strength and conditioning coach? So know your why. And one thing I would ask anybody that's listening that wants to get into this field, if your why is because it's the cool, shiny thing, um, or it, it pays well, or which it doesn't always, spoiler alert, or whatever that may look like, if it's not because you genuinely want to give back to the end user and help individuals maybe go down range or go out on a call, if we're looking at, you know, first responders, be able to respond more effectively so they have less negative impacts and come home safe to their family or just to, I mean, just come back happy, then you're not, you're not in it for the right reason. So um, I would ask everybody who's listening, like do a gut check and know why you actually want to do this um, because they deserve it. This, this population deserves the best of the best and the people that genuinely have the heart to be there. And 100% agree with you there, Kate. And I just wanted to take on from that then. You're saying obviously for this, this population group in this community, giving them the best of the best and obviously giving back I really want to talk about, I don't know if a project is the right word for it, but like the work you're currently doing with uh, leaving the sideline. Um, ah. <laughs> that's coming up, I know, for you guys. Could you just talk a little bit about what leaving the sideline is and, you know, how this all came about? Yeah, I'm 
thank you for bringing this up. I'm so excited, John, that you're giving me the opportunity to speak about it. So I serve as the Holistic Health Director for Leaving the Sideline, which is a nonprofit organization that was recently formed by both NFL alumni, um, so we have two Super Bowl champs on the board, and then also um, prior special operations um, soldiers. And so, and then some unconventional um, military um, soldiers as well. And so, honestly, what triggered it was, um, so Chief, who is um, amazing, amazing man that I've worked with for, uh, I was able to work with that first group. Um, I have been really interested in creating something to help with suicide prevention. And that really is our mission. So one suicide is one too many. And unfortunately this year, um, a lot of us lost a lot of friends to suicide. Um, and so for Chief, he lost somebody incredibly close to him. And he's like, we gotta do something, we have to. And so a lot of incredible people brought, you know, came together and we are creating a platform um, launching on 11 September, the day that this is airing. And we are basically creating a platform of resources that are available to support the veteran community, um, but expanding out to, you know, NFL alumni, family members of veterans or active duty military personnel. And the idea is eventually, so again, this is in the, the very beginning stages, we're just now launching, but the idea is to be able to create an application. And we're starting uh, with our scope of, of Washington State, so we wanna do it right, and then we're gonna expand out to other states, hopefully, and potentially internationally, if it's if it's something that is, is making an impact. But we uh, want to be able to provide resources. So whether it's, um, you know, different, like, clinical psych, you know, therapists being able to access and so I plug in the information what I'm looking for and then based on my location and my needs, it's going to help direct me to the right person. Um, we have a, a strength and conditioning coach that came on that is going to be kind of navigating that physical performance domain. We have a dietitian that's going to be looking at that for us. Um, director of player operations is, uh, his name's Hillary Butler, Super Bowl champ, and he's looking at, hey, how do players actually leverage these resources that are available to them, NFL alumni? And then we're doing the same thing in regards to accessing resources through the military and the VA. So we just want to be a platform to be able to connect people to the right resources. So they mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, they're able to thrive right? They've, they've devoted and given so much, whether it be to serve our country or for entertainment purposes. And again, if we're talking about that self-identity theory, what, what happens when you were an NFL player and maybe you didn't finish school? And that's another lane that we're looking at is, is helping to encourage, you know, financial stability and educational pursuits as well. And so how do we help build these people up? right? And help them establish a new identity because it, it is going to be new. And again, our our main focus is just suicide prevention. And so something so close to a lot of us, and we just really want to make a difference by being able to provide resources, um, you know, throughout this. So um, hopefully people will leave the sideline with us and get in the game. And our website is leavingthesideline.org. You can check it out and, um, you know, give us a like on Facebook, give us a follow on Instagram. And I think that, you know, the more people that we can spread the good word to perhaps the more lives that we can save. Nice Kate. That's, that sounds awesome. And I'll make sure all the, uh, the social media and the, the website stuff, I'll link that all into our show notes so everyone can follow Thank that you. quickly. 
Um, it's, it sounds incredible, and I can't wait to see that continue to grow and flourish. Um, obviously, Kate, you've dropped a lot of knowledge bombs here today for us. Um, <laughs> I'm always intrigued, just everyone I speak to with regards to you know what their go-tos are for their own CPD and their own developments. So I always ask everyone, you know, could you give us a book, uh, a website, or an app recommendation that you know you found useful in your education or your development? Yep. So I am a big fan of, especially in this field, um, I mentioned earlier that these guys are, are already high performers. They're already utilizing a lot of the skills. They will have already read a lot of the books. So anything mainstream that is um, one that's like commonly heard of. So on killing, on combat, uh, mindset, they're, you know, um, Leadership and Training for the Fight by retired Master Sergeant Howe. There are a lot of these books that people have already read. And so you need to know what these kind of hot topic books are. Uh, one was actually just recommended to me this last week by uh, a Nor Norwegian commander that came to our headquarters and he was super stoked about the book. I bought it, I read it and it is rubbish. And so I was able to have a conversation with him saying, actually, this isn't accurate. This isn't, you know, um, this isn't great scientific evidence, <laughs> if you will. And so we were able to have, have that conversation. So um, any of those books, right now, one I just finished that I'm super, super stoked about, Stillness is the Key, is an amazing one um, in regards to that idea of kind of mindfulness meditation. Um, so that's one that I would definitely recommend. The Body Keeps a Score is great. Um, there's a new one that just came out called Breathe, which I, I quite enjoy as well. Um, apps. I'm a big fan of Headspace, Calm, um, Insight Timer. On Insight Timer, Ellie Grace um, is the woman out of the UK that I studied yoga with, and she has free uh, mindfulness practices on there. She's incredible. It's incredibly incredible. Um, and I think that I would tell everybody, practice what you preach, mm -hmm. right? So just like any kind of physical skill set, if you don't use it, you lose it. And also if we're not embodying it and, and engaging in it, we can't expect our end user to. And then finally, I knew you were going to ask me that question, by the way, John. And I was like sitting at work and I looked at, so I keep a library at work is what I call it. And I check okay. books out to people. So if they come in and there's a specific topic, like someone grabbed off my shelf, What's Your Why by Simon Sinek today. Yeah. Um, and so if there's a particular talk, topic that we're talking about, I'll, I'll, I'll give them the book, they'll read it, and then we have a discussion about it, um, which I find to be really beneficial. So as I knew you were going to ask me about the book because I heard you ask Josh and I counted, so just in my work library which does not count the 27 books I'm looking at to my left uh, I had 46 so <laughs> so one is just a little bit too hard for me to narrow it down to but another one that I would or another I guess um, genre I'd recommend is any historical any historical books relative to the unit okay so um, for example when I start I was able to go up and, and work with the UK a bit there are a lot of different historical books that have been written about those special operations units and so I made sure to read and to know as an American what I was going into and so um, just crush anything and everything that's relevant um, podcasts like this one just just absorb and learn um, anything you possibly can. And then a lot of us too on social media in the field, we'll share episodes, we'll share books. So um, just like if you see a recommendation, grab it and, and, and crush it. Sweet. Thank you very much. Kate. That's awesome. And obviously 
for anyone who's listened into this podcast uh, and wants to follow or find out a bit more about you, how can people do that? Yeah, the easiest way is probably my Instagram account. So at the tactical psych is my name. Mm-hmm. I'm also on LinkedIn, but I'll be honest, I, I'm more active on, on Instagram. So that's probably the best way to, to hit me up if anybody's interested. Um, and I respond quite uh, up, up within probably a few hours if anybody has any questions. So if you're interested in, in getting in the field or if you have any questions, I'm all about um, being able to give back and paying it forward. And I, I think that if we continue to exchange information and, and build one another up, there's no sense in recreating the wheel. Um, it only helps the end user because at the end of the day, it's, it's not about us. It's about the end user. So for any practitioners in the field as well, share your info, share it out, put it out there, um, share your knowledge so that we can just continue to make sure that this population is getting the best of the best. Awesome. That is great. Kate, thank you once again. It's been an absolute uh, privilege uh, to sit down and chat to you. Um, Really, really insightful. A lot of good notes I've made here. Really, really interesting chat. So thank you once again. Thank you. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter. To stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.